You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, Hello, everyone. Uh, Before we begin doing introductions and diving into the discussion, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land we meet and I guess have been working on today, the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their continued spiritual connection to land, to sea, to sky, to country. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend this to all First Nations peoples. Um, For those who don't know me, and probably 60% of this crowd does already, um, I'm Georgia Burks. I am a graduate of architecture and associate editor at Architecture Media and a proud descendant of the Kamilaroi and Dungari peoples, so that's up in northern New South Wales. Um, on top of that, I do a couple of other things. I'm a co-curator of the Asia-Pacific Architecture Festival. Um, I sit on the Design Excellence Advisory Committee of the City of Melbourne. And I also am lucky enough to sit on the Australian Institute of Architects First Nations Advisory um, Committee working group thing that we like to call it. Um, and it's that's an absolute privilege that I was invited by Sarah Lynn Reese, who is here with us today, and Mark Bergen. Um, Sarah Lynn Reese is a Palawa woman descending from the Palagamira. Sorry, Sarah will correct me, and the Trawulaway people of North East Tasmania. Um, <laughs> she is an absolute gun. She's an associate and lead Indigenous advisor at Jackson Clements Burroughs Architects, lecturer at Monash University. M Pavilion Program Consultant and Curator of the Black Architecture Series, which we're meeting on today, um, co-chair of the Australian Institute First Nations Advisory Working Group, and along with this, she sits on several advisory boards. Um, as an Indigenous woman, Sarah brings a unique perspective to her role in architecture, which is underpinned by her personal experience, heritage and research in the Indigenous built environment. I'm also lucky enough to call Sarah a friend and mentor. Um, And joining her in the panel today is Mark Bergen. Thank you, Mark, for being here. Mark is CEO and founder of Better Future Designs, um, which was previously known as Driven by Design. Uh, For 40 years, Mark has been working on creative projects that sit on the edge of the next. His mind is excited to get to the future faster and to help others get there too. In 2005, Mark decided to build a community that celebrates applied design, uh, design that solves human needs and helps people to live with meaning and dignity. And that project was known as Driven by Design, which is now Better Future Programs. Um, So it's lovely to have you both here today. Thank you. Um, And I guess we'll go around the circle just briefly to um, get to know everybody else who's joining us here today. Hi, I'm Molly. I'm the program producer here at M Pavilion. Um, I live on 
uh, Wurundjeri country. I grew up on Wiradjuri country. I'm a descendant of um, Irish settler heritage. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Hello, I'm Nikki, also on Wiradjuri country. Um, I do work with Georgia and sometimes Sarah <laughs> <laughs> and Caitlin. <laughs> Um, but I um, am here because um, I'm very interested in um, in this subject and how we publish um, Indigenous projects and engage with Indigenous issues in our magazines at Architecture Media. Thanks, Nikki. And Nikki also um, has developed uh, so, so an Indigenous engagement sort of style guide for architecture media. That's another thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm Caitlin Butler. I'm the editorial director at Architecture Media. Work with Georgia and Nikki. <laughs> um, but again, like Nikki, very interested in, in having a chat with everyone to hear um, different perspectives on what, um, what we can do differently, how we can um, keep learning. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're really keen to do that um, from, from our perspective as, as publishers. Um, so, yeah, keen to hear everyone's thoughts. Hello, uh, my name is Dionvir, uh, Jinji. I'm from Hungary, but um, yeah, currently living on Bonnerongland. And um, at the moment, I'm on maternity leave, <laughs> as you can see. Uh, but I'm a former Monash uh, alumni um, and tutor. And um, when I'm not on maternity leave, then I work at Triumph Studios as an urban designer. <laughs> Um, hello, I'm Hazel. I'm a recent architectural graduate and I work for Vincent Chris Architects and um, we're just starting our rap journey. So I'm at the beginning phases of the conversation in the Indigenous world. So I'm just here to learn and have chats. <laughs> <laughs> hello, I'm your audience. <laughs> <laughs> hello, audience. Hello. Um, I'm thrilled to be finally at the MP Pavilion. I'm from Sydney. Um, the uh, Gadigal people, Yoruba Nation, Khmer people near Manly is where I hark from. And I am actually here to see Yoast's greenhouse and wanted to come and, and listen and just take in some of the Black Architecture content and to be part of this. Well, I guess it's back to me now. Um. <laughs> Um, obviously today we're here to have a yarn and it's going to be pretty casual and relaxed, which I think is sometimes in the moment when you get the most out of and the most input from everyone. Um, so that's kind of quite nice. And we're here to reflect on our experiences. Um, and I guess I'm just going to extend that out to everyone as well in what we're seeing in media and awards um, in Australia. Um, and particularly in Australia, there is a growing interest in collaborative design processes that engage with First Nations communities, elders, consultants and designers. Um, we're seeing with this with the development of policies and frameworks such as designing with country and campus to country um, and also the changes to the national standard of competency for architects. So there is a big movement happening. Um, and typically a project after completion is submitted for media 
and awards programs to seek review and praise. Um, and with this continued momentum of Indigenous engagement through design and beyond, I think it's actually quite timely um, that, Sarah, you've reached out and create, curated this session today to do a pulse check on how we are representing and acknowledging First Nations involvement in architectural projects across publication and price. Um, so I personally think that the, the two are quite linked and there's a relationship between awards and media. Um, but I guess to kick off the discussion, I'd like to sort of start focusing on talking about awards um, and awards programs. And Mark, like as I mentioned before, you've been running Better Future Awards for I think over 12 years now. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you how much influence do awards have in shaping the future of design? There are different, different drivers with awards. For some people, they look at them as a personal validation or it's actually, um, it's part of the recognition of the merit that they have for their work. For other people, it's actually a way of showing respect for the team that have worked on a project or in the case of a courageous client who's turned around and said, we'd like to be taken to the future, can we do this? So you get this shared courage moment, which is showing respect for the work that they've done. How you refer to that and whether you get the energy, which is you're giving people validation, you're giving them the excitement that they've been recognised by peers and recognised by the industry to move forward, is actually where the media comes in. And if the media is actually trying to go and say, it's about the one project, then we get caught because that's a little bit like having the Olympics and the only sport that was relevant was swimming. Oh, hell, we're in Australia, that's what we think. Um, or is it that if you're in the US, it's the 100 metre sprint? That's done this reduction, which has said there's excellence in every discipline throughout the Olympics. Everybody who winds up being on the podium as a gold, silver or bronze has done an astounding thing, the best of the best. So do you take a broad-based approach and recognise that there is such influence and excellence across the board, or do you try to go take it where you pick one or two projects out? So the media can actually go and deflate a broad-based awards program, or they can actually amplify it by saying there's a showcase of incredible work. And I know through the work that I see that your organisation does that you do that broad-based amplification, that's what we're about. But there are some people who try to turn it into the ego trip and then all of a sudden it gets lost in the culture of personality. Everybody else who was involved with it is lost. And I think the lens that we should be having is actually about the astounding projects and the courage that's in the project and what did the project solve rather than actually who was the individual that was actually the biggest ego on the, pro on the project. <laughs> that's actually... Um a nice link to my second question, which I'll probably direct to Sarah. Um, what, I guess, <clears throat> one of the first articles, I think it was actually the first article in for the Indigenising Practice series, which was to award or not to award. Um, and that's talking about whether we should award, it, uh, have an Indigenous, uh, an award for Indigenous projects or Indigenous processes in the Architecture Awards. Um, and I guess there was a sort of similarity between the answers in that, where everyone um, either thought it would you should be awarding design excellence or the design process. It was kind of a variation there. But the thing that was similar was that 
the criteria needed to be quite clear if there was going to be a ward. So I guess that's my question is, what do you think we should be awarding? Is it design excellence or the process? What is the criteria? And I think we could probably also extend that into the manifesto later too. So I think we were having this conversation just before about that article because um, Mark was also um, interviewed for the article. And the, the broad-based conversation or the one we've been having so far is really should there be an Indigenous Architecture Award or should there be criteria in every single award that relates to country mm. and indigeneity? And um, the reason, there's sort of some pushback about the idea of having a singular award for the reason that it should just be fundamental and normalised into every single practice that we do. Um, but then there's also the mentality that, you know, we're, the pendulum's been swinging so far for so long in the direction of ignoring Indigenous Australia and country that perhaps we need a period of time where we have a specific award that's about Indigenous architecture or working with community to highlight it and then normalise it in. I think um, the conversation we were having before um, before this yarn is that it doesn't have to be or, <laughs> it can be and, yes. um, and potentially we could do both. Um, but if we do do both, then that sets up a really interesting question of well, what is different then about including it in every single award mm. versus having an award that is separate from it. And I think... Um, you know, the, the conversation we've been having over the last five years has moved from a sort of surface-level understanding um, in terms of, like, the general public to having really sophisticated conversations and yarns, especially in the context of the architecture series. And we're moving away from the where do we start and what is engagement and what is the process to, well... You know, how do we facilitate the health and well-being of country in projects? Because mm. that is fundamentally the most important thing. Um, representation is important, but if country is not healthy, then we're not healthy. So um, does that then sort of sit in alignment with sustainability? And if it does, then we have to change the criteria for sustainability because they're so quantitative-based okay. rather than being a broad spectrum of, you know, um, cultural, social, mm. every kind of sustainability. Um, I don't know if I have the answer because I can't as an individual person have an answer. <laughs> um, we, exactly. it, it needs to be a bigger yarn. Um, and that's what we were talking about earlier as well. It's like not one person can speak for a whole group of people and that kind of goes for community too, especially talking about projects, which we'll come back to in the sort of next couple of questions that I have about media. Um, and you've pretty much answered my next question, which was, are we seeing an emergent secondary category um, or should it be part of the criteria to win for each category? So I might just go on to the next one, Mark, which is your awards programs are national and international. Um, and I guess what we were talking about earlier as well was how the Asia-Pacific was doing such a fantastic job with um, engaging community and actually getting results. Um, so, in your work, what patterns or shifts have you been seeing over the past couple of years in awards programs to the direction of celebrating Indigenous designs or other type of entries shaping the awards programs? So, I think one of the, one of the key things that you've got to consider is, does the award program actually have a biased lens to start off with? And... In history, there have been quite a lot of award programs that have had a very biased lens. Some of that comes from the shape of how you create the award. And when I, when I set up the, the awards programs, I made sure that there were a few things. One was that ego wasn't going to drive it, so we were never going to award an individual. We were going to award a project. 
And when you award the project, the hippo, the, the, the highest paid architect or designer on the project, doesn't get the, the airspace that they may get in some other award programs, so they don't come to us. So we're really, we're like, got rid of the pollutants, the toxins. And, uh, and then we turned around and we said, well, how about we don't see gender? How about if we don't see cultural origins? How about if we see astounding work and we give recognition to the entire team that's on it, and then we let the market turn around and show how astounding or how pathetic they are. And unfortunately, the majority of people who enter in the awards do not know how to go and actually give recognition to their entire team. So there's, there's a problem. And that's something where we then hold briefings with award managers who might be a studio manager or might be a, a lead architect and help explain to them why it's important that you give recognition to everybody. Probably the, the busiest day in any month for us at, uh, at, at Better Future is the day after we announce the awards where we then have, we've left somebody off the team. Can we actually add them back in? Apparently nobody looks at the, um, the acknowledgement that yes, uh, you've been selected for an award or you're on the short list. The only time they look is when they've been actu actually awarded and then they turn around, they all hurry, we better get Peter on the list or we better get Barbara on the list because they've <laughs> left off and oh my God, it's now, they've recognised that. So, so it's important that we work to go see inclusiveness. We work to go look at the universality of, of what's going on. But then the other thing that people forget to do is talk about what's simply awesome in their project. And if it's an indigenous architecture project, then the awesomeness is that they've been able to capture the cultural references and amplify those for the betterment of the community. That's lacking. And so that comes down to the people who are the authors of the nominations, knowing that that's okay to go put forward. And I think maybe that they're a little bit reluctant to go actually speak with that voice and there's going to be a whole bunch of reasons for that. But the confidence to be able to say, this is what we did that was astounding, mm. is often lacking. And we talk about that in the jury, which is, it's a great project, we know the backstory. how come the description of the project is so woeful? Mm. And we've gone back to, to, uh, to projects and said, can you resubmit and actually tell the proper story? So there's a function there about people not having a confidence in their voice. There's also about, have you worked out how to get bias out? Mm. But all we can do is put a front door that people can actually say, this is how astounding we are, and then work out how to encourage them that they can put in the story which talks about their cultural references, talks about the inclusion, talks about the social equity that they put into a project. But they're not as sexy as talking about something which is about budget or something which was about, you know, it, it was the biggest or the first. And so a lot of people who are, have PR training are really bad at actually working out how to talk about things that matter. Yeah. What they're talking about are things which are big and better, mm. and that's a problem. It's kind of a night. Oh, you go. I was going to say, do, in on that vein, people don't necessarily tell the full truth about a project, which is what you're talking about about why it's gotten to that point. Which is also an issue because, from a protocol sense, you need to have First Nations voices centred if they were part of that project. So the First Nations people need to be able to speak about the project rather than being spoken on behalf of, which the award system might not might not allow, which might be a systemic issue which we might need to solve. Mm. Um, but the, I, there was one, one of your first questions to Mark, which I've been thinking about since you asked it, and um, if I can reframe it possibly, yeah. is, like, you know, what is the power of the mm. awards? Mm. 
And I think it, um, in one way, it's a, an annual measure of what we value as an architecture community. And I'm interested, you know, are there shifts over time in that? Because I've, you know, I've sat on a number of juries and it is really hard. I'm going off on three different tangents at once here. Go but, for it. Um, it is really hard to be that person on the jury, be presented a project by an architect that says they've done engagement but they don't explain what that engagement is and you don't hear the traditional owner's voices um, as part of the explanation of that project. So how can you as a juror sit there and go, this was a valid process, the community is happy, the outcome is wonderful? Mm. So, so I'll go back to the systems of, that you designed for the award projects. We decided to publish the nominations. Every nomination is published so it gets peer-reviewed by the market. And so what happens then is that we get emails back saying, you know that thing that said A happened, well, it actually didn't happen. Or you know they say that they were actually the principal designer on this, they weren't the principal designer. Oh, that's from the That's design from the public. Community. Oh, wow. yeah. So, so, what, so the first couple of years of the awards that we ran, we... <laughs> We were inundated and there were, there were cease and desist letters, there were all sorts of things because people were basically putting up, um, I think they're called lies or in Donald, <laughs> or, I'm not going to use a reference that we haven't heard for a while, in Donald Trump's world they're called truths, um, but uh, in the idea that they were putting up lies and those lies were being called out because we then had the community were validating whether the nomination was correct or not. And it's very interesting when you get that transparency, then you solve by the time you get to the jury round, that's been washed out. And so that was a very brave thing to do. But I looked at the trends that were going on with social media and the way that even things like Wikipedia are able to go and actually cleanse themselves out because people want to be good actors and say this was the reality. Um, it served us very well. How did you manage people's personal biases through that? Was it difficult? Or was it just the first, obvious? <laughs> the first five years were um, a test. Yeah, a test. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> and just wanted... I'm skipping ahead a question here because we were talking about how, um, if you're on a panel as a juror, how you don't get to see or the full picture, or get the full story. And I remember in that article um, from the Indigenising Practice Series to award, to do not award... Alyssa Fetterheader, who's a principal now at Jazzmax, mentioned that it was quite tricky in 500 words to actually capture the depth of engagement that went in. Um, and I know that sometimes um, a community might send through a piece of paper endorsing the project. Um, but perhaps, like, I guess the question is, how do we think we can determine, um, how do we determine the dimensions of engagement with a community, with the community, in a limited amount of space or time, or is it more of the fact that the actual criteria needs to expand the word length or change, I guess, what is submitted to allow those, um, the depth of the story, the depth of the engagement to actually come through? Or does that come through when you talk to an architect in their room? I think oh, it's a tricky question because I've sat on, on different juries before and one where you do have the 500 words and 10 images and that's all you get to describe your project and yeah. another where you get 2,000 and as many documents as you want and people and lots and lots of words, like three times <coughs> the amount of words and people just fill them with yeah. stuff. 
They don't <laughs> use them in a, in a good way. Yes. They write that many words because they have that many words. Mm. And yes, if it is a complex project and there are many voices and it was collaborative, then it is harder to write in 500 words. Mm. So where's the balance? I have no idea. Mm. Um, but the like your point about the criteria, right, that, that does have to change. But does it need to become a criteria that is the project needs to demonstrate X or is it has the project considered these things? Mm. If it hasn't and they haven't explained it, then can you really award them if they haven't explained it? Yes. Because it should be relatively easy. In, should it? <laughs> like for them to explain it, just like, yes, this happened or, or uh, is that a lie? Well, so I think we're talking about storytelling. You don't have to read War and Peace. You know, if, if it's a compelling story that the project has been able to solve something, it's solved it. You can't solve it if you don't do the right amount of community engagement. So, so having somebody going, giving you a dissertation, which is War and Peace, that tells you that they, every minute step that they went and did, it's not storytelling. That's actually that's an evidentiary discovery process. Juries see a huge number of nominations. The reality is we know how many seconds every juror takes for every nomination that's been in the awards for the last 12 years. Write short, write really short descriptions. That's all I can say. Okay? They're busy people... You think that they're actually reading everything. They're not. Oh, damn, I read everything. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 I, but so I'm going through the... So, so we've got an, an analytics engine that turns around and we see exactly what's going on. We work out whether we're going to invite them back. The people who look at a project and after 10 seconds have decided that they can actually come up with, a, with their ratings on it. Uh, maybe you haven't actually got the spirit that we've got, but somebody who takes two hours, you think, well, you left it on your screen, you went out, got some food, and you came back, because that's probably the, the reality. It's somewhere in the middle might be where it, where it sits, but the reality is award nominations are meant to jump off the page and tell you that they solved something. If you haven't solved something, then we're in a style or a feature contest. It's meant to solve to solve, you've got to do the appropriate community consultation. And the peers are going to know whether you've solved it or not. So I think there's, it, it's difficult when, you're, when you've got a culture which has been, we've given people so much opportunity to describe it. As you were saying, they, they're filling it up with dross. That's a polite word, isn't it? <laughs> but they're filling it up with dross rather than actually trying to cut through and say, this is what we did. This is this was the challenge. This is where we got to. These were the innovations that we found. This is how we made things better. That should be a pretty quick story. If it's got to be a, I don't know, a Game of Thrones, hundred and fifty-six episodes to let you down at the end, then who really wants to know about it? There, there have been instances though of projects that um, have said they've engaged with traditional custodians. Uh, they've presented that in their project. They've won the award. And then it comes out afterwards that they really didn't do a proper job. And let me guess, that award program didn't show the community the nominations before that went into the jury round, so they weren't peer-validated, and therefore the jury were given false information, which is why we designed it so that you had the peer validation early that flushes it out. And it's, 
but I, some of the emails that we get are, really, somebody told that lie? Um, and then you have to go back gently and say, well, we actually, we've had feedback that maybe the way you've represented it isn't correct. Is that the same in Australia as it is in America? Because cynically, I would imagine Americans would quite happily tell people that they were, did the wrong thing. But Australians can be polite. I could tell you Australians are actually the hardest. Yeah. So, so that's, that's interesting. Or maybe it was because we started with the Melbourne Design Awards before, and Sydney Design Awards before we went to New York and London. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'd learned how to explain the process better and the, the cat was out of the bag and people knew what was going on. Mm. But the first couple of years where we were finding that people were able to put up half-truths, not full-truths, and then they were, they were getting away with things, well, that stopped and now it flows through quite, quite well until you get somebody who's breached somebody's copyright patent or, mm. I don't know, they are getting divorced and then they're interesting letters that you get as well. Mm. Which makes me wonder... Should there always be endorsement or a letter of endorsement from community? Uh, as an Indigenous person on a jury, I would say yes, because yes. how can you know? Exactly. Like, if, if you don't have that, not necessarily an endorsement, we had a long discussion about <laughs> endorsements before this. <laughs> I was going to ask yeah. which yeah, yeah. endorsement. Um, yeah. Yeah. But just even a, a letter that states that, you know, and maybe that yes, letter doesn't happened. go through mm. the, the architect so they can't edit it, but maybe it just gets uploaded. Um, yeah. Just to say that, you know, yes, we were part of this process and we think it was a, you know, a pretty good process and mm -hmm. we like the outcome. Yeah. It doesn't have to be too extensive. Um, you know, you do it all the time. You get client statements. Why can't you have statements from traditional custodians? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking about storytelling is a nice sort of segue into the media side of the conversation. And I think um, to sort of start off, I wanted to sort of do a pulse check on what we're seeing, what we're exhibiting, what we're sharing. And I think that's something that Sarah and I can talk pretty um, pretty well to, <laughs> given that we've worked together and um, I've worked in at Architecture Media now for a couple of, a couple of years, one you know, year and a bit. Um, and I know that uh, we're building this network in the architecture community of First Nations designers where, um, or architects or planners or artists, um, graphic designers. And I know that something that is quite central to my core is like making that network bigger and using the platforms that we have to um, exhibit them ask them to write a piece um, or ask them to speak at a panel. Um, and that's something that I guess we're probably all here. That's why we're all here. We want to hear Indigenous voices in media. And I think media, when I say media, I'm talking about all different types of media. I'm talking about magazines, um, festivals, panel discussions, exhibitions. Um, so I guess I feel like I'm seeing a lot and I'm sure you are too, but I, I kind of actually wanted to extend that question to the audience a little bit earlier because I feel as an editor and, a, and as editors and curators and um, Mark, I'm guessing you would have seen quite a bit as well. So I'd love to hear what you're seeing. Um, I want to know what everybody else is seeing out there in the media um, in regards to Indigenous voices being central to the conversation or the exhibition or the article. Um, or are Sarah, we in a bubble? <coughs> or, are, or are we in a bubble? Or are we in a bubble? I know that the Indigenising Practice series was kicked off by your, um, Caitlin and uh, Sarah back in 2019, I think. 
Yeah, it was literally just before we went into lockdown. We went and had a, a beer in the pub. Yeah. And then we went into lockdown. Yeah, and that's a continuing um, series throughout Architecture Australia to not just have one specific theme of a magazine, but to have Indigenous voices continued in every issue across... It could be any sort of type of article as well. Um, <laughs> and so I think that's something that we value quite a bit in what we do um, at Architecture Media is making sure that Indigenous voices are included in everything we do. It's not just one specific thing. Um, so, like we said, I feel like I'm seeing quite a bit because that's something that I'm quite interested in and that's my heritage. But um, perhaps we could go around the circle if everyone's comfortable with that um, and be honest. If we're not seeing anything, tell us. Um, I think it would be good to hear. Oh, yes, let us know. <laughs> no worries, bye. <laughs> oh, basically, um, I just want to know what you're seeing in exhibitions, in magazines, um, in panels and in festivals. What What events are you seeing that have... Indigenous voices speaking or um, centralised? I, I, think, I think I'm seeing a shift. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in um, recent, the re most recent couple of years in programming, um, as a person that does public programming, um, it's very central and it's, it seems to be, have moved into a broader mainstream um, media and stuff, which I think is awesome. I think there's obviously still a lot of work to be done and I think that there's, you know, there's quite a lot of um, centralising of the intent, but I'm not quite sure um, about where some people are at in terms of getting those voices. Um, and But I think that there's been a... I feel like there's been a significant shift in the last few years from my point of view. I... I feel the same. Um, I mean, I don't know that I have a very objective view, but I definitely feel like I'm seeing a lot more um, recognition. Um, and Caitlin and I had coffee with um, an architect and curator this morning who has been living in London. And she happened to make the comment that um, She's been over there for a few years and coming back to Australia after having lived over there, she's really noticed a shift. Um, so that was interesting and heartening, I thought. <laughs> um, and the other thing I wanted to say is that I, I really notice it now if there's no um, Indigenous content or engagement in media, um, whereas before you kind of noticed it if there was. Mm. Now I feel like it's noticeable if it's missing. Yeah, I completely agree and probably in the same bubble. <laughs> um, but, you know, like as somebody who's really trying hard to get Indigenous First Nations people's voices out there on the, all the things that we do, we do awards programs at Architecture Media, we do Design Speaks program, which is like an event series, so lots of conferences and talks and things like that, and then the magazines. 
and the website. So there's lots of ways we can get different voices into um, all our different media outlets. Um, but what I struggle with is that in architecture particularly, there are very few First Nations architects and um, I don't want to inundate them with requests to do things and be part of the conversation. So I feel like at the moment we're a little bit, I mean, Georgia and I have talked about this as well, a little bit like stuck sometimes. We're like, oh gosh, we just, you know, we know how busy everybody is and we want the voice there centrally. And we've got to the point, you know, for example, Kevin O'Brien, you know, he used to work with us a lot um, and write a lot and talk on our conferences and, you know, he's a good friend of mine as well. And um, I was on the National Architecture Awards jury with him and that was a fantastic experience just sort of learning from him, like seeing all the projects with him and him kind of unpacking things and ask the questions that he asked were really um, useful questions and I learned a lot through that process. But he just sort of decided actually, no, I'm just going to take a step back from this. I'm going to focus on my practice. I'm a principal of BVN. That, you know, I want to do this right now. And that's totally, accept that's totally fair. So I find... Um, Yes, like it is definitely central and we want it to continue to get stronger and stronger. But I struggle personally with, um, you know, the limited, I mean, and that's something maybe education, like getting more First Nations people studying architecture. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, we expand our network. We had Daniel Boyd speak at, you know, an artist um, speak at our conference in Brisbane recently. Um, so we definitely think of different ways of doing things. But um, I guess that's our current, well, that's what I feel my current or our current sort of struggle is yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah I think what I notice is that there are multiple bubbles probably so um, <laughs> yeah truly so um, <laughs> yeah I, I'm certainly not in this inner bubble you know or indigenous yourself or extensively working with indigenous people but as an architect I also notice that I'm in a bubble like compared to the general media and I think our profession is quite conscious and, and acknowledging First Nations people and, and working with them but um, I don't really see this recognition in the general media uh, but also maybe it goes down to you know how architecture is represented in the general media and how much we talk about our built environment yeah um, I agree <laughs> great, great answer. <laughs> um, I think just like I said, I think because of the learning process that I'm just starting, I'm only just now kind of opening my eyes up to, yeah, the acknowledgements and stuff. And um, I feel like when I wasn't really looking into it, I didn't really see it. But now that I am looking into it, it's kind of a bit more, I don't know, out there. But yeah, I agree with you. Well, welcome, welcome. <laughs> um, Mark, well, what have you been seeing? So I think... It's been fantastic to go see that there are people who are focusing and great work that architectural media has been doing in, in bringing the Indigenous voice into more publications and increasing the frequency. But we speak about the media as if it's um, a homogenous single entity when the reality is there's a thousand channels. And so our media consumption today is far more like a Facebook feed. Oh, does anyone use that anymore? Let's say an Instagram feed. Oh, there we go. Okay. Go Instagram, it's, it's, it's that's Instagram. safer, yes. I, <laughs> I could have said MySpace and even aged myself <laughs> more. Um, actually, there were tablets and Moses had them. Um, right, so, but an Instagram feed is that it picks up threads that you've shown interest in. And so I think it's actually important that we're getting the depth of knowledge and in those threads. 
So it's great that, that you guys are doing the work that you're doing. There's an interesting thing that came up within one of the town halls that we did last year when we were looking at Black Lives Matter. And uh, Hassan uh, uh, from um, Chevello, he was saying that they had a, a project they did where they went to work out what was the indigenous population at Chevello. And they initially went out and asked and they, they found a couple of people. And then they went and did a little bit more consultation. They found out people who had First Nations origins and they felt safer to actually say that they actually had a cultural heritage which was more diverse. And all of a sudden they found out they went from being at a woeful percentage of their staff to actually being at parity with the, uh, with the census. And so I wonder how much of it is that people are saying, can I just be an architect? Do I have to be a black architect? And that came up in the Black Lives uh, Matter series that we went and did in different, in different parts of the world. And again, Eddie O'Para was, can I just actually be Eddie who does awesome design? Do I have to be the voice of, of black design? And I know a book that's recently been put together by Steve Heller out of, out of New York yeah, that goes into all of these great texts that have, been, uh, that have come out from different uh, black art, uh, designers and architects throughout the US. But he's had to go back over decades and it's... Actually, there's not that much material. So I think there's a, there's a thing about when do people just want to be themselves or when do they want to be a spokesman for a community, and that's part of the challenge. What I'm seeing with that is that there's not enough cachet with saying that you're a black architect and being a voice that wants to be published. That moment hasn't come around. So what we've got is we've got enablement where people are getting an opportunity, but the cachet side isn't there. So we, we're not getting people who are saying, I want to actually make sure that I'm regarded as being the best indigenous architect in the country. That's yet to actually be worth their while. And you know, we do things because it, it has benefit to us. That will come but we're not quite at that point at the moment. So what we've got is that people who want to tune into a channel are getting some content, but the reality is architects, designers don't feature in the main media anyway. It might be a developer who does. If we, if we actually had an indigenous developer, then, then all of a sudden you'd have the papers writing about it. But, so then that's, you know, it's actually follow the money. I think Watergate taught us a very important thing, which is, it's one thing talking about the, the craftspeople, which is what architects are and designers, but it's actually who are the people who are initiating the projects, how are, how's that economic cycle, where's the drivers in the economy, because I th the problem I see for the arch architectural industry is it tries to actually have a conversation which is leading, but it's actually, it's responding. And what I'd be trying to do is actually get that you're getting the people who are leading the projects that have an interest in investing, you know, you know, cultural values in them. Get them talking about it, not the people who are the craftspeople who are who are doing it. And that seems to be the way that the overall conversation about the built space has been advanced is from the people who are commissioning the work, not just the people who are creating. And you've got to get the tension between the two. Um. Well, well, uh, we've had a lot of people, a lot of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people advocating for indigeneity in the built environment for many different reasons in terms of, well, health and housing have been probably the longer ones. Um, and then cultural representation, cultural centres, all those types of programs. We're now seeing big civic cultural projects that are about Indigenous people or country or places. 
um, you know, the momentum is growing and I think we're starting to see that even government's finally putting a decent amount of money into projects. And if you want to say follow the money, like the first Indigenous projects we worked on, we were doing them pro bono and they had like no budget. Then the next lot of projects were like, well, we've got a $30,000 fee to design something that would, you know, it's low bono, say. Um, and and also a very low budget. And then you might get a normal fee, but it's still a really low budget. Um, and then you look at the context of where that project sits and all of the other projects around it who get much, much higher budgets. It's That's where I think it becomes disheartening because you're, you're sort of setting an Indigenous project up in some way to fail um, because it's not being funded appropriately. And then how does that fit into that cyclical process of, well, you need good architecture, you need these projects to be awarded because you need people to see them, you need people, young Indigenous people to see them in the media somewhere so they can say, oh, that's cool, I could do that. Um, like, it's all connected to the same cycle. And I think it, it is shifting from the money perspective into there's actually becoming more decent funding for these projects. And I think that's been that, the barrier or someone holding the handbrake that you were talking about before. Yeah, and I've got no problem that there's a, a bit of cringe because I, I hate that term, follow the money. But when I go look at where momentum goes, momentum is that people say this is worth my while and it's worth my while because it solves other problems for me. And if, it's, if there's money involved with projects, it solves my... If I'm a partner in a firm, it sol solves my billings. If, it, if it's a, a well-funded project, it solves our profit ratios. It, it, like, it's, a, it's just everywhere. And there's, that's part of the devil in trying to go and actually get something that builds momentum you know you're at a very sustainable level where that's no longer a consideration that it actually, it is worth everyone's while. But before then, you've got to have some really brave and courageous souls who have a vision who will say, let's go do this because it's either the right thing to do or it's actually going to be great from the values that it brings into our practice and into our organisation. But you can only do that if you're in a privileged position. Absolutely. And, and so I suppose there's the problem that we know that there's, just about everybody has that model of 99 problems. What are the priority problems? And the priority problems are that you might have 10 or 20. Is Indigenous architecture fitting into those 10 or 20 priority problems? It doesn't if they can't know about it. So the work that Architectural Media is doing by actually promoting that conversation, enabling it, that means that it's moving up the priority list. At some point, it turns into being problem 20. It becomes problem 15. It becomes problem 10. And it's actually just monitoring as it, as it moves up in people's priorities, which is actually the level of success that it has in the community. And the other dilemma there is if you try to bring too many problems in stacked all together, maybe it's just got to be that it's actually got to go and actually respect the culture of the First Nations people. Is that is that the first priority? Or is it about the depth the depth of that process that's in there, and you're going, well, you can't solve everything all at once for everybody, and you've got to start to break it apart. And I've got a feeling that sometimes because there's been so, and whether this is women's issues or it's uh, indigenous um, issues, there's been so many problems over so long that have been suppressed and haven't been given air, that sometimes we try to put too many solutions into into one expectation. And that's a, that's a dilemma. I do it myself. 
Mm. It's, it's a human thing that we want to see this all solved. And we try to solve too much too quickly. Maybe we've got to reduce some of our expectations to make inroads and accelerate with leaps. I was just going to say, I wonder then, though, if the fundamental difference here, and I don't know if you feel the same, but as an Indigenous person in the built environment, you were talking about, um, you know, black architects just wanting to be architects. That was your example that you gave before. I think there's a maybe a cultural fundamental difference in that we have an obligation to country and we have a responsibility to country. And that means, and country includes community. Um, country is, you know, the whole encompassing idea. And so it is pretty, like, it's pretty unimaginable, at least from my perspective, to be an Indigenous person in the built environment and not feel that sense of duty to country for every project that you work on. Whether we're successful in that or not is very largely dependent on all the parameters that surround us. And it is unfortunate that um, because there are so few Indigenous people that a lot of young Indigenous people get thrown into these public conversations before they've had time to find their voice. That's very true. Mm. That is that is <laughs> coming from experience. Um, that is absolutely true. But I also and I also think um, you know identifying as an Indigenous. Um, graduate of architecture, designer or um, architect, in my circumstance, graduate of architecture, it's important to do that for the small amount of us that there are to then reach out and um, show through media, through projects, that there are people who are Indigenous, First Nations, working in this industry and that you can do that. Um, and I'm just looping it back to media again here and we're talking about funds, we're talking about all the complexities that go into actually creating a project. Um, you know, there's so much that happens and it can happen over 10 years, three years, the timeline changes. For representing that in media, specifically now talking about articles and peer reviews and reviews, um, and maybe this is more of a selfish question to kind of <laughs> gain more knowledge on my end, but um, do we feel as an industry, and maybe we'll start with Sarah and then go to you, Mark, that we know how to appropriately critique First Nations design processes and projects. Um, and I, Or is this still an emerging skill? And I asked this because I had a, a conversation with Carol Gosam the other week about um, the, Barack, uh, the Barack building, your William Barrack building in, uh, with RAM. And uh, she mentioned that the conversation was more about the architectural outcome and um, there, that there was endorsement from First Nations community that was totally forgotten um, and everyone was up in arms about how the building looked rather than acknowledging that um, the community that worked with them on that project was actually okay with it. Yeah. I think that's an interesting example because it ties into a lot of stereotypes that are still held about Indigenous people, mm -hmm. um, namely one being... Uh, if you look at one of the criticism that comes from an ill-informed perspective or, you know, a non, an ignorant but not ignorant without choice, I don't know mm. what the right word is, um, that you don't represent Indigenous faces mm. of people that have died. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's true in some communities and that has evolved. And in some communities it is still really important not to do that because it's a, a form of capturing your soul. Um, but in the context where we are, that's not inappropriate. So immediately you get yes. all these people being like, oh, they're representing an Indigenous face. You can't do that. Mm. It's like, well, yeah, you can. Um, and um, 
then you get the people who call it facadism and uh, it's skin deep and, you know, it's only all of those... Like, it's it's not doing anything more for community than, you know, putting a face on a building. It's appropriating blah, blah, blah um, for the benefit of the developer, X, Y, Z. I've never heard the architect speak about the project. I've heard traditional owners speak about the mm-hmm. project and the traditional owners I've heard speak about it say it is the only building in this entire city that represents... Wurundjeri culture, mm-hmm. people and community, that they're still here. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are small things, small, you know, predominantly landscape projects, but it is one of the only ones, if not the only one, mm. that is like, we're here. Yeah. And there was an engagement process, and as far as I know, it was entirely appropriate. And, you know, the it's going back to the question of why do you need a traditional owner's perspective on a project in the jury context or mm. an awards process is because if the traditional owners say it's appropriate, from a protocol perspective, it's appropriate. Yeah. Who am I to be like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to overrule the traditional owner's perspective if they've gone through that process and they've determined that it's appropriate. Mm. You can have a question about design <laughs> if you like. Um, but in the context of what we're talking about, I don't think that we're mature enough as a architecture community to have critique yeah. um, on Indigenous projects. I still think that there's a significant portion of the population that is... Um, uh, well, it's actually quite interesting, the recent changes to the NSCA and what that, what's happened about that. But there's a significant portion of the population that's still paralysed by fear. There's another portion of the population that have gain some agency because of the changes that are happening and they want to work in this space but they don't quite know how to do it and so they want to have a voice but um, they, they don't, they're not informed enough mm-hmm. and you sort of feel it's probably sharing too much but you probably feel at some point of just being like stay in your lane, yeah. like just stop. Um, there are protocols that you're not following by saying the things that you're saying out loud and that's the protocols are important from a media perspective. Like we talked about those before. You don't speak on behalf of Indigenous people. You, um, you know, you don't overrule the authority of a traditional custodian on their country. Like all these sorts of things that are getting completely ignored because they're not common knowledge. Mm. And the issue, like that issue wouldn't be there if when that project was presented in the media, the traditional custodian's voice was in it mm-hmm. and said, we love this project. Mm-hmm. We love the process that we went through. You would, you would have stopped that dead. Sure, some people probably still would have had a, their perspectives, but that's why it's important. That's why those protocols are important. Mm-hmm. And that's why having those voices there, part of the rewards process or the mm-hmm. media, is so important. Mm. Not just for an Indigenous person sitting on a jury going, mm, is it, is it not? Yeah. But for everyone. Yeah. I think the really important thing is if you can't see it, you can't be it. And... Seeing a building that has an Indigenous face on it all of a sudden says this matters. Having an Indigenous face of a deceased person on the building says this is okay. That's all about building up knowledge. It's about sharing. It's about stories being able to be exchanged between communities who otherwise wouldn't have them, even if they're flawed at the time of of outrage and reaction we know that we're able to say, well, that is acceptable to go have a deceased person's image on a building. I didn't know that. I was one of those ignorant people who'd heard something from other country but didn't know that was relevant here. So my knowledge was improved because of the outrage. And sometimes, I think when we've seen other areas where there's been outrage, um, 
I'm thinking of some of the un, un, unfortunate um, rapes and murders that have been around and then the slut-shaming um, protests that were on. And then people are saying, well, should this or shouldn't... You get a dialogue and you get a tension that goes on, which means that people learn if they want to learn. And the people who want to go and, and dig in their heels and stay back in the past will do that. But the people who want to progress will be able to listen to those conversations and will learn, but the rate that they're learning is too slow. And so that's where we need to actually then work out how do we advance the conversation and how do we share that knowledge, not during an outrage cycle, but through other interfaces where we've got people who want to go and learn. And I'm sure, as each of you have learned your you know, uh, cultural backgrounds, that that didn't happen in one conversation. It probably happened over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe even over 50 years. And so that's important that we work out how to go and make sure that that sharing of knowledge and sharing of understanding is there because I don't think it is that people don't want to know, it is that we just haven't had access to the information. And about three or four years ago, I realised that I knew more words in Icelandic than I knew in, in any one of the mobs. Mm -hmm. I, just, I think it was when I learned the word Mamanjika. I went, okay, now I've got my first one. But I can speak a lot more words in Icelandic than I can for the First Nations people on the land that I'm on now. And I'm going, that's crazy. And then I worked out that there was, there was next to no interface for me to find that. I, I couldn't bump into it, yet I was bumping into Icelandic language when I stopped in there and went, went on a holiday, but I wasn't bumping on, into that in Australia. And that just, that troubled me. How come it was that it, it wasn't as prevalent? If I went to New Zealand, I'm going to bump into the Maori language and the Maori culture a lot more. Why isn't it prevalent? And they're important things that we ask those questions and then we work out how to go solve them. So I think the, if you don't see it, you can't be it. I want to see more. I want the media to be amplifying it more. I want to see more buildings that are actually challenging me. I want to hear more debate because then we learn and it's actually how to accelerate that learning. But we need to make sure that's done in a culturally safe way. So putting Absolutely. traditional owners in a perspective where they have to get up in front of a, a crowd that is willing to tear shreds off the architects and get them to defend the architects is not culturally safe. But I'll go back to the reference I was making about the slut-shaming um, side. If we didn't have people like Alan Jones and Ray Headley in, in Sydney who were coming out with it totally inappropriate or you know uh, other people on Fox Media, if they don't come out with a totally inappropriate position we don't understand that that's actually acceptable for some people. So therefore, we don't understand what we have to counter. So it's that thing about there's a stumble as we learn culturally. It's, it's maddening that we have to stumble, but that's how we learn, which is, oh, somebody's actually on the other end of the spectrum. Let's see what we can do to correct that. It would be fantastic if we could just give a nice little instruction, say, look, these are the things you need to know, but it's not how we really learn. We learn through stumbling, which is unfortunate. I think we've got a question at the back. Multitasking there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, hi. This is William and Leah. We're, um, <clears throat> I'm returning to your statement earlier about let's not limit it to architects, people more generally, but designers often are not really equipped. Um, they don't have the knowledge, understanding to um, evaluate or really understand the work that's in front of them. Many different types. And I think about what you're saying about like developing that knowledge in order to be able to participate in um, a broader conversation. And it's great that we've got 
sort of more informal conversations like these going on. But in, um, let's say, for example, the tertiary design sector, there have been instances where there have been formal Indigenous um, access to formal Indigenous understanding within the curriculum, but it goes. It doesn't stay around. And it's in, in the instances that I know, it's gone and it hasn't stayed around, not because it hasn't been popular with people, with the students, it's because of the celebrity, I won't, I won't say because of, but in some instances it's because of the personality of the people who hold senior positions. And so when the next regime comes in and that doesn't fit with their vision, it just goes. So I think it's really, I'm, so my question is, how is the community, the Indigenous community and the non-Indigenous community together you know, working out committees and working out processes and decisions whereby we can make this knowledge more formal. Um, I'm happy to take a crack at that. I think um, that one's for you, Sarah. <laughs> um, the, the fundamental issue that I think you're describing there is that it's not a systemic requirement. Um, and for us to be teaching and learning and practising architecture in Australia and to not have an understanding of the country that we're fundamentally changing with every project that we do is um, has actually become unacceptable um, and the system is changing. So, you know, what you're describing over the past years, over the next five years, is going to change fundamentally because there's a new performance criteria in a document called the National Competency Standards for Architecture. So... Um, trying to loop this into the wider conversation about awards and media, we need to really look at all of these systems that um, that we operate within and figure out are they creating barriers or opportunities to ensure that these things aren't one-offs, that they're actually fun like fundamentally ongoing aspects of the way we practice and build and everything that we do. Yeah, so there's eight First Nations-specific performance criteria out of 60, um, and that document represents the absolute 50% minimum baseline requirement to pass a degree. So it is minimum. Um, and it includes everything from having an understanding of um, traditional owners' um, aspirations to care for country, an understanding of intellectual um, Indigenous ICIP, someone help me, um, Indigenous cultural intellectual property, um, um, it's got an understanding of engagement processes in various different forms with different communities. You know, it's quite broad, but it allows... It, what it does is it empowers architecture schools to ensure that it is central because it's this whole thing that I think we've sort of been dancing around both with curriculum and awards and media. It's carrot and stick, right? For some people, it's going to be a stick and they'll need those performance criteria to be there. Um, and then as a carrot that can then be the carrot for somebody else who can then go, we have to do this and use it as a piece of agency to ensure that it happens. Yeah. We've seen this um, 
solved in the sustainability area, particularly with things like uh, lead ratings and uh, well ratings as badges on buildings. And that's interesting to go see when government purchases say the buildings must have a rating of a particular standard. Well, but okay, so but quantum qual, but yeah, but there's but there's a process where you've got to turn around and say, why is it that some systems work and others don't? And it comes down to system design. It's an exemplar of when you get government saying these standards need to be met before we will have a building that is actually successfully commissioned, that is a big change. And one of the most important things, it's unlikely to come from the private sector, it's gonna be led by the government. And then after it's led by government, you find out that their fingers are everywhere. All of a sudden that's in the private sector because of PPPs and it keeps going and it keeps going. So I think it's actually working out how do you get a conversation with the largest commissioners in the country who are government to say we want to have these cultural understandings and standards in place. When that's been done and it's been worked out systemically, then you can start to roll it out. Then it has to be part of the curriculum at the universities because people can't go and get their degrees. They can't actually be serving the market. These are, these are system issues about pump priming, but that only comes around because you start a conversation and then you build momentum around that. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So I don't know many areas across design education that universities are considered to be leaders for the market. Generally, the market thinks that they're a long way behind. So I'd, I'd be actually, if, if the people who are meant to be leading this conversation are the universities, then they fail in most areas of being contemporary with what they're teaching people. So that means we're actually giving the indigenous opportunity, we're putting them behind the eight ball. I'd be actually going back up the stream the people who are commissioning the work, if they demand that these standards are met and they demand that that's the badge of approval, that's the badge of quality that they've got, then you actually see it flow downstream and eventually universities catch up. But what you were talking about was universities were doing it because it was somebody's interest and then when there was a change, it was no longer on the agenda. That's the systemic problem when it's actually somebody's interest rather than it being required by the market. I think this might be a good time to maybe move to the manifesto part. Uh, it ultimately kind of sounds everything is pretty much linked, media, awards, education, curriculum, um, and ultimately media and awards are a reflection of what's happening out in the industry. Um, so, I mean, we can sort of continue the conversation on curriculum, but I'd probably prefer to keep it towards media and med uh, awards. Um, and ultimately, I had sort of a starting off question. I think what worked really well beforehand when we just went around the circle, oh, we have, we're happy to do that again. Um, like I mentioned, 
just before, it is clear that media and awards are a reflection of what's going on in the industry. Um, so ultimately, what do we want to see more of from the industry? Um, what I kind of want to ask, what, we're, what are we doing right, right now? Um, and where do we need to improve? I think that could be quite constructive um, for the manifesto. I also want to ask, what do we want to see more of? Do we want to see more panel discussions, exhibitions, reviews? Um, should the reviews be about design excellence that have been collaborated by community and architect? Or is it more about the processes? Because um, I know we're talking a lot about that in indigenizing practice. It's actually practical um, uh, information. Um, and then also, obviously, looping back to the start of this conversation, the criteria of awards. What, what are we seeing that we need to change? And I think one of them was um, an automatic inclusion of a letter from the community. Um, so we could put that one down first. Um, but it is getting cold. <laughs> so we'll keep it short. And there's only a couple of us here. So maybe we just go around once around the circle um, and feel free to just chime in with any advice or... Uh, not so much advice, but uh, constructive feedback would be good. Can I just start? I'd love to see that there's an effort put in that says that we're able to work out, similar to an energy rating, you know, if something's a one star or a five star, I'd love to know whether the community cons consultation was a one star or five star rated consultation. And I know, I just, I just, I just heard the exhale, but, but I would like to put that challenge on the table. I don't think you can, can I, you, I don't think you can, because well, there are certain instances where, like the William Barrack building, engagement doesn't start before the project. And in all, uh, like 100% amazing best practice approach to engagement, that is not it. I but didn't, the engagement I didn't say it was easy. I no, just no. said I'd like one. <laughs> and then it becomes a tick box exercise. If you start putting like stars on things like this, it would concern me that people will just do, oh, yep, I've done my base level things, tick, tick, which is actually what a, prob a problem of like a lot of these kind of energy rating or, you know, the leads and all that sort of stuff. People now just tick the boxes. They're not innovating. They're not trying to do better. They're just doing what they base level have to do. So I worry that if you like add some sort of rating system, people will just do the minimum and that's not enough. So I'd, I'd love to have somebody who was pushing the boundaries on those ratings turn around and say, well, it's not a tick boxing. I get it. For some people to get the minimum compliance it is, but we're talking about excellence programs. And it's going to stand out if somebody is actually bending the needle from their, uh, from their community consultation or whether somebody is just putting in the weakest performance to go past some, some criteria. So I, I get that there's errors in there and there's issues, but we need to have reference. We can't just all go in blind and say, oh, but we, we haven't even tried to go sort this out. We need shortcuts all the way through our societies. We have shortcuts that help people to say, this is of quality, this isn't of quality. I don't think that's a bad aspiration. I didn't say it was easy, but it's not a bad aspiration. Uh, something that um, really stuck with me recently in an interview I did with um, Troy Casey from Blacklash Creative up in Brisbane um, and Kieran Wong from the Fulcrum Agency in Western Australia, Perth, um, we had a discussion about Indigenous First Nations consultancy in projects. And something that really stuck with me was that for both of them, 
Kieran coming from Perth and Troy from Brisbane who were collaborating on a project um, but each had their individual projects on the side. Both mentioned that the relationship was the project with the community. And I'm not sure how, apart from a letter being submitted, um, I'm not sure how you define a relationship um, with a star rating. So I w- for me, perhaps the star- that rating actually comes through in a letter, okay. which is something that... If we're looking at changing the criteria and suggesting things to change, perhaps that's the way to do it where we say, okay, if you're saying this, in your that you're doing community engagement, you're saying that somebody you've worked with, a traditional owner or a community leader, show uh, or get that they, have, they must themselves supply um, a letter of... I don't want to say endorsement, but a a letter stating the fact that they actually did that. Because I think even with media and the work that I do in media, when asking to speak to someone for a particular article, um, and I'll just touch on this briefly, but, you know, we we work quite in advance in a couple of months for particular articles. And there was this one um, that is coming out in May um, who we desperately wanted um, this First Nations uh, contributor. He's a builder and he was brilliant. His business was brilliant. What he was doing was fantastic. Um, But his relationship was with the architect. His relationship wasn't with me. So when I asked him to sit on this interview... He, he didn't really respond, um, and which is fair enough. And I think that that's, that uh, totally makes sense. But um, I think that the relationship... What I'm trying to say is basically um, the relationship with community goes beyond the building. In um, I don't know how you capture that um, in a rating system. So I'll, I'll help you out with three levels of a rating system. It was terrible, it was okay, or it was good. That by itself is a start. What I'm trying to do here is just, we need shortcuts, and I'd rather have a flawed, bad, average good. Who takes it? Well, I didn't say it was simple, okay? I just said you asked what would we like on the manifesto, what we like in the list. You're you're prosecuting me about how do you make this work so it doesn't have any issues. I'm just saying what I'd like. Okay. May I do it? Put Mark like... (laughs) very difficult to do qualitative work and it's very difficult to assess it. You know, it takes time and everybody interprets it differently. Um, so that's that's why a, a rating system, a static rating system is, you know, maybe difficult. But that's not to say that there can't be one. It might just take a different form. You know, it might take the form of a participation and the more people who participate um, demonstrates, you know, how successfully people feel about it or it might be that it that you use a recoding system that's color based or something like that which you know certain um, designers or initial judges value you know and that might be patterns or so people can choose what's already put in front of them could be a game so there are lots of ways to do it Um, but I think the end the end how to design it comes about with the type of goals you're trying to achieve and I think it's participation and and the, the important thing is, if you don't have them, you're letting the buggers get away with stuff. 
Okay, so every time you you have a conversation, it says, "Oh, it's going to be hard to create this rating system." What you're doing is you're letting the people who are trying to subvert the system and get away with stuff, you're giving them a free run because they'll say, oh, there's no rating system and I don't have to worry about it. That's kind of it. Nobody really knows how it works. That's the other side of the equation, the people who aren't well-meaning, the people who are trying to get away with stuff. You block them. You block some of them. You put up some barriers and you improve and you bring in continual you know, process improvement in there. But you've got to try and you've got to work out how to give shortcuts. Otherwise, how does anybody know? Because how do you measure a relationship? Well, that's almost impossible to do. You've given people who want to say, oh, look, it was a good relationship, a free kick. You can measure the relationship by the standard of health. Yeah. So you can, you can generally... So there are people who have been working on this for a couple of hundred years. And they're really major thinkers who've done it, who've been working on it, cross-cultural thinkers. And it's health. You can see whether something's good or not. But, 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 but health has a dwell time. Yeah, that's true. And I, and I can tell you, there's yeah. no way we're waiting 20 years before we're awarding a project. And if I'm <laughs> trying to go get a shortcut that says whether this was actually a culturally But I'm not talking about architecture. I'm talking about person-to-person -person okay, health. So you've got to use analogies and metaphors to get to where you want to go to. But you can measure it. You can see it. It's, 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 okay. it's aesthetic. What about the length of um, the submissions? Is that something as well that should be reconsidered? Oh, Gigi, it's Gigi? Yeah, finish it. Oh, I was just, um, just, I know I've referenced that uh, first article um, to award or not award quite a bit. It's because I've got quite a lot of out, of out of it, which is why we keep doing this Indigenising Practice Series. But, um, you know, Alyssa Petaheta is... Uh, incredibly intelligent and could write very succinctly. But for her to say something like, you know, um, the, the word length was not enough, perhaps we do need to extend it. But how much is too much? Uh, I don't know. I'm just chucking that answer out there if anyone wants to. Well, maybe there just needs to be several layers to it. Okay, you've entered the project. Yes, you've acknowledged it's an Indigenous project. If you've been shortlisted, then we require a letter or something from the traditional custodians to ensure that it's appropriate so by the time it gets to the jury, um, like what I'm looking for when I'm on a jury is I can't even assess the design of the project until I know it's culturally appropriate, the process was culturally appropriate in the eyes of the traditional custodians. Once that's known, then you can actually look at the architecture. But the barrier is knowing whether or not it's appropriate. So that it's it's like it is pretty simple. I agree with you. I don't know if I agree with the rating system, um, but I do think that there needs to be some mechanism because then you'll get enter into the conversation of overburdening community yeah, and exactly. Z. Mm. So maybe it goes to well, okay, it's been shortlisted. Now we need to know that it's appropriate. And and length. <laughs> I'm going back to another cultural reference here. Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. If he hadn't have gone in with the diatribe of, you know, and all of the other things, you had me at hello wouldn't have worked. So you need to have something which summarises the project, but there needs to be great background that people can go check on. There needs to be a great backstory that needs to be accessible. I know we have jury members who go out and they'll go do their Google search, and if they can't find anything about the project anywhere else except an award submission, it's not going to get their vote. So, you know, it's the backstory, which is if he had have just said hello in Jerry Maguire, he wouldn't have got there. It was the fact that he did the rest of it 
that then was able to come up with the summary, you had me at hello, but it was actually the rest of it that told the story, not the hello. Yeah, just a quick comment. So, um, yeah, I don't know if a rating system is good or, or bad. I think it might be a good tool to, to rate the outcome, but I think the process itself is so important. And as uh, yeah, one of you mentioned before, like indigenous people are not a homogeneous group, right? So I also wonder, you know, how, these, how the process happened. And I guess there might be um, differences in, in opinion, even among uh, indigenous people as themselves. And... Um, just to answering your question, you know, what do we have and what we miss? Um, I would love to hear more about, you know, how to, to talk to indigenous people and, you know, when there's a discussion, then, you know, how to, how to moderate it. And it was great that you had a previous session about, you know, questions that you don't dare to ask. I'm so sad I couldn't attend that, but I think it's really important because it's such a sensitive topic and, um, you know, um, I'm definitely one of those persons who are like, oh my God, I, I don't dare to ask, you know, and... But, but we do have to, even if we make mistakes, we just have to start the process and, and do it. Yeah, I think I just want to add to that. I, like, I was thinking about your question too, and I, I agree that in, in terms of what you were saying before about what do we award, and I think that obviously we need to decolonize what awarding and awards are, and I feel like a great way to start by doing that is by looking at the process. And the, what you're saying about the relationship is the relationship is the project and the relationship is the thing to award. And I feel like what you were saying before about that education of, like, um, people's understanding of how to do things, if you were more... If we were more transparent and awarded those processes and um, publicised those sorts of things, people would know where to start and um, I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah. Sorry, and th thank you so much for running this conversation. It's so timely. There's so many interesting things happening, and this is a really interesting conversation. But in terms of just returning to what the awards are, and it's not necessarily for Indigenous people, it's for all people, it's being recognised and being recognised for what you have done. And in, if you return to awards um, and... Um, uh, standards and those types of things, a great way to recognise qualitative work is, as the lady was saying here, reflection. So a part of the process at that stage you said, like when we've gone down to shortlisting, can be a type of reflective journal, which somebody's got to do all the way through. That can take many different forms. You know, it can be video, it can be poetic, it can be dance, it can be whatever you want it to be, but you can find out if it's real by, you know, the strength of the relations, the strength of the terminology, the jargon, all those different types of things. And it's quite beautiful, you know, and it becomes another layer, as you say, of um, expression. I mean, it gets, you can make it semiotic, you can put it all over the building, you can do all kinds of things with that. So, look, we're going to take off, we've got nappy to change. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible multitasking. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other inputs or...? Yeah, look, I think that like we, because we've moved on in terms of the conversation about representation and it's now becoming more about responsibility, mm -hmm. I think it's a really important time for us to actually ask these questions again. We've asked them before, but we need to ask them again and we probably need to ask them again in a few more years. Yep. And we should, yeah. Mm. Um, 
because the you know not to harp on about education but the change in that education the change in the document that says this is what an architect does then influences and trickles down into every single aspect of our profession including the awards so it's going to have to change it's just a matter of it needs to be done carefully and it needs to be done appropriately and it needs to be done in a way that doesn't bring cultural unsafety to those involved um what that is, you know, we can hash out different ideas, but really a whole lot of Indigenous people need to get in a room and have a conversation about it, yeah. um, which we will. Um, but, you know, the, I just want to acknowledge there are small changes that have happened over the last few years, one being the inclusion, well, architecture media has been doing it for ages, but including acknowledgement of country, or sorry, acknowledging whose country every project is on in the publication. Um and the awards have been doing that for the last couple of years of requiring the institute awards of requiring people to enter to put in not just where whose country it's on but also how they source the information and can i tell you um that you know that's it's been interesting um and it's sort of like i won't say too much about it but it becomes a reflection of where we really are at because you know some people will genuinely put in the reference that they've got and other people will just be like I don't know. Um, and, you know, it would be so interesting to track that over time because that's one small thing and we decided to put that one small thing in the awards a few years ago because we wanted that to be normalised before we then went on to the next step. And I think it has to be that iterative process, otherwise we're going to cause a lot of harm, not for architects but for community if we rush it, we do too much too quickly. So I think it has to be iterative and we have to build on it. In the same way that sustainability is being built on, you know, you can tick the box, do you want to enter into sustainability? Okay, here's a whole set of new criteria that you have to answer. That's been building up for a really long time. It can't be quantitative in the same way that sustainability is, but it has to be incremental. It has to be something. And I think we just have to be really careful because I'm just worried that we're going to cause a lot more harm for a lot more people. You know, you'll have an Indigenous person in an architecture office who's get called on who didn't work on the project at all to answer the criteria for that project because they're the only one that might yeah. know how to answer it. Or, yeah. you know, you get um, elders and traditional custodians or the cultural authority of the voice for that project being asked to do something and they don't know what it is. So there's got to be a whole support around the whole process, but it does have to be iterative and it just has mm. to be careful. Yes. And we need to be able to observe the changes that we've made before we make the next step. I think that's a fantastic way to end because <laughs> I can see us all shivering. Um, thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. And thank you, Sarah, for being here today and being part of this panel to talk about media and awards and Indigenous voices and where we're going to go. And also to our very lovely, intimate crowd. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>